battle between David and Goliath is probably one of the most well-known events that takes place in Scripture. In fact, people who have never grown up in church have usually still heard the story of David and Goliath, and it's used as an illustration for when the underdog stands up to the champion and is able to overcome him and defeat him. Um, but a lot of people don't really understand exactly what the story of David and Goliath is really about, and usually don't know a lot of the details surrounding it. So today, we're going to read through this story and just kind of talk a little bit about it, talk about why it's significant, uh, kind of the historical backdrop that sets the scene. And we're not, we won't get through all of it today, but we'll, we'll get through kind of the setup and, and the buildup to the battle itself. And then we'll talk about the battle next week. Uh, but this is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we'll start at verse 1 and just read through it a little bit at a time, and I'll kind of talk about um, just each section. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soka in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephestamim between Soka and Ezekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. So here you have the Israelites on one side, on one hill, and the Philistines on another hill, there's valley between them, and they're lining up for battle. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the Philistine people. They were a seafaring people, they traveled across water a lot, and they were also very warlike, where they would pillage and plunder. And more than that, they were very good, they had strong weapons because they were one of the few people that had moved out of using bronze for their weapons and had begun to use iron for their weapons. And in fact, there was a little bit of interactions between the Philistines and the Israelite people before this battle begins because the Israelites used to bring uh, any kind of iron weapons or armor they had to the Philistines because only their blacksmiths were competent enough to deal with uh, iron. And the Israelite people weren't competent with iron yet. They were still using bronze. And so because of that, there was a bit of a good relation between the Israelite people and the Philistines up until this point. And now it has reached to a point where the Philistines have said, you know what, let's stop working together with the Israelites and instead we're going to try to overtake them. And so the Philistines gather their forces to try to take out the Israelites and the Israelites here are on the defensive defending their uh, home and their people from the Philistines who are coming to attack them. Continuing on in verse 4, says a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span, which is about nine feet, nine inches. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels, which is about 125 pounds. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point 
weighed 600 shekels, which is about 15 pounds, and his shield bearer went ahead of him. Now, it's really important that verse 4 points out that Goliath was from Gath. That's important because in Gath, there was a group of people there who were the Anakim, and the Anakim were a people of giants who had descended from the Nephilim. And who the Nephilim were, the most common understanding uh, that is accepted for who the Nephilim were, was they were a group of people of uh, women that had interbred with demonic beings. And their offspring were the Nephilim. And so the Nephilim's descendants then were the people of Anakim, who were giants who lived in Gath. And that is who Goliath is. Goliath comes from these Anakim people that lived in Gath that were descended from the Nephilim. That's why he was nine feet, nine inches tall. He was huge. He was this great champion. And he came from a line of people that were descended from a demonic bloodline. So then you go on into verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So here we see uh, kind of the end goal of the Philistine people. They weren't wanting to just completely wipe out the Israelites. They wanted to take the Israelites and have them become the Philistines' servants. They wanted to enslave these people, not just wipe them out, but enslave them. And their idea of how to do this was to have Goliath go out, who was their greatest, fearsome, uh, most fearsome champion, to go and take down their greatest champion because they had a lot of faith in Goliath due to his size. And then they could just enslave the whole Israelite people. So those terms were set. And in, on hearing their, you know, Goliath's words, Saul, who was the king of the Israelites, and all the Israelite people became scared because now they were seeing Goliath, who was standing before them, and they did not believe that they had the power to overcome him. You know, maybe if they attacked as an army, they could get three or four of them to gain up on Goliath in the middle of the battle and, and try to take him down that way. But one-on-one -on -one in a fair fight, it didn't look good for them. And I believe the Philistines did this because they knew the reputation that the Israelite army had. The Israelite people were God's people, and they often took out any enemy they came across. Any enemy that they would fight, the Israelites would almost always win because God was on their side. So they, I assume what they were planning in this was, well, we can't beat the Israelite people as one army versus another army, but maybe if we just take our greatest champion 
and pit him in a fair one-on-one fight against their greatest champion, there's no way that we can lose. And the Israelites in this moment forgot that they were God's people, forgot that God had been leading them to victory time and time again, all because they became so focused on Goliath's size that they could see right in front of them. And they let that fear they had of Goliath's size take away from them the faith that they had in the God that was blessing them. And that was where the issue first began, was the Israelite people had lost faith in God because they were too scared of Goliath's size. So now we move on to David's introduction in verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So this actually isn't the first introduction of David and I'll go into that a little bit in just a second. But David, we see here a separation between David and the rest of his family. Where David's three oldest brothers, the three oldest sons of Jesse, had been sent off as soldiers with the Israelite army to face the Philistines. But David was left behind to take care of his sheep. Uh, his father's sheep. And it says in verse 15 that he went back and forth uh, from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David is going back and forth from Saul, who is leading the Israelite army, back to his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now, if David wasn't a soldier, then you might ask, well, what was David doing going to visit Saul, the leader of the Israelite army, as they were lining up to fight to face and fight the Philistines. Why was David going back and forth? Well, this was because David was already in Saul's service as uh, as two different roles. First of all, David was Saul's armor bearer, the person that would follow the king with the armor and carry all of their gear and equipment for them. And then also David was a musician in Saul's service. Because what would happen was Saul would often come uh, under the attack of an evil spirit that would drive him crazy, and when David would sit and play, the spirit would leave him. So David was already in Saul's service as an armor-bearer and as a musician, but just not as a soldier. And so he still then had the responsibility as a shepherd in his family to take care of his father's sheep. Another important thing to note um, about David up to this point, you know, before this moment, was that God had already rejected Saul as Israel's king because of a mistake that Saul had made. So he's still Israelite's king, but he had been rejected by God, and God had already instructed the prophet Samuel to go and anoint David 
as the next king. So that's the position that David is in. He is, of course, still a shepherd in his family, but he has been anointed as the next king and is in Saul's service as an armor bearer and as a musician. And because of that, he keeps going back and forth from Saul back to Bethlehem where the sheep are. So now let's go on. Verse 16. For 40 days the Philistine came came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. So, what we have here is a good old-fashioned stalemate. For 40 days, every morning and night, Goliath comes forward and makes this challenge for someone to come and fight him. And it gets to the point that Jesse, you know, gives David some food to take to his sons, who are soldiers in the Israelites' army, because they've been gone for so long. So this is something that is going on longer and longer and longer. And one thing that I do wonder, I don't have any proof of this, is I wonder if the Israelite army not only had this great reputation as God's warriors, I also wonder if maybe the Israelite army outnumbered the Philistine army. And that's why the Philistines are like, well, we, we don't we don't want to go and just try to attack army to army. So we're going to stick with this and, and keep challenging them to this one-on-one battle against our champion until they finally accept. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, I, that's just kind of the way I picture it in my head. Where Israelite was, the, the Israelite army as a whole was a bigger threat, but none of them were brave enough to stand against Goliath. And that led to this stalemate that went on for 40 days. Now, I also want to point out just a little bit about Jesse, um, because his three sons are out in battle. And this passage has already told us that he was very old at this time. So he wasn't uh, fit enough. He wasn't healthy enough to participate in the battle and so he finds himself in this situation where those, he, they, those that he loves and cares about are in danger and he can't go and help them because he would become a burden and liability rather than something helpful. But he's not content to just leave it at that. He wants to do whatever he can to support those, support his sons who are on the front line. And so he gives David food to take to them. And when I think of that, I think of something that my dad told me. Uh, So my dad was in the military. And one time he told me that for every soldier that is out on the front line, there are two people back at base supporting them. And when I thought of that, I, I began to wonder to myself, what would happen if we took that same concept, that same principle, and applied it to spiritual things. Because really that's 
how church kind of already operates. You know, you have people up on stage, you have the pastor that preaches, you have the musicians that play. But those people aren't the ones doing everything in the church. And there are usually so many other people doing more behind-the-scenes work. You know, you have the greeters, you have, you know, maybe a board of elders or trustees or, you know, just different people in the church. You have prayer leaders. Um, it's all these different people that support those that are kind of in the spotlight. And even, you know, I can speak from my experience as a pastor that I'm still supported by my wife. So even though my wife isn't up there in the spotlight on the stage with me doesn't mean that she's not still supporting me and that I don't still rely on her supporting me. And I think that if we kind of took that mentality of, you know, for everybody that's out on the front lines, there should be two people supporting them. It places a higher emphasis on support than performance. And I just think that would be a good principle to really put into practice in church. That we just do a better job of supporting one another and those that are doing the work so that those who are doing the work don't become tired and burnt out, at least not so fast, because there are people there supporting them. I think if we could just increase the support level of one another in church in general, that that would be a great thing. And really, that would greatly affect our witness, because Scripture also talks about how they will know that we are uh, believers because of the love that we have for one another. So anyway, when I think of Jesse uh, doing this, where he is supporting his children the best way that he can, I just think that's a good principle to keep in mind when it comes to spiritual things as well. So let's continue on, verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up, and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting their war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, first of all, I just love the idea that David had a backup shepherd for his flock. I, I, I guess I'd never noticed that before until I read through this passage um, for this sermon, that David left the flock that he had in the care of another shepherd, and just the idea that he had like this backup shepherd to take care of his flock, which makes sense because if he's also in Saul's service, he's not going to be there for the sheep all the time. He's going to be gone a lot. So the fact that he had somebody there that could take care of the sheep while he was gone... Um, Partly, I just find that amusing, but also I think that is another great principle to take into consideration, that um, David didn't have this mindset where, oh, if I'm not there, then everybody's going to be in trouble, 
And I'm okay with it being that way because I'm just that important. And if I'm not there, everything should fall apart. That's not the mentality that David had. It, it, he recognized that, no, I won't always be here, especially having been anointed as Israel's next king. I'm not always going to be here to tend the sheep and tend this flock. And so I need to train someone up that can take care of the flock when I'm not around. So that when I'm gone, that's not just this void that is left, um, but the sheep can still be taken care of. And I just love that, that even though he's been anointed as the next king, and he's probably thinking about, well, how am I going to lead as the new king of Israel? And how how am I going to take care of all of the Israelite people that he still was caring about? Well, also, how am I going to take care of these sheep once I'm not here anymore? And he was training up uh, a backup shepherd to take his place. I I just never noticed that before, and I, I thought that was really interesting. So then David gets to the battle lines, and you know he leaves his stuff with the keeper of supplies. And then he immediately runs and asks how his brothers are. And he's listening to everything that's going on. And, and when Goliath comes out, he shouts his usual defiance and says, And David heard it. And then all the Israelite people were fleeing from Goliath in fear. And David watched that. And, and so I really get this kind of idea of David's personality through this, that David was someone that watched and listened. He was somebody that paid attention to his surroundings. He tried to gain as much information as he can, as, as he could. You know, he didn't have this mentality of, well, I've been given the job to go and deliver this food, so I'm going to go deliver this food and then go right back home. He wasn't satisfied with that. He didn't want to just be the food delivery person. He also wanted to know what was going on. Why uh, have the Israelites been in this battle for 40 days and also nobody seems to be hurt? What is going on? What is this situation happening? Let me check on my brothers. Let me watch what happens. I want to uh, not just be so caught up in my own little life that I miss what is happening right now. I want to see what's going on. And it's especially more admirable that David still cared about his brothers so much when you see in just a few verses here uh, how David's brothers began to treat him. Um, but we get a little bit of insight into David's character through that. So let's continue verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. Now, David asks this question, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistines? And he asks it after all the Israelites have just been saying, what will be done for the man? So let's dissect that a little bit. When David is asking what will be done 
for the man who kills this Philistine. Chances are he was probably already thinking that he might need to step up and kill this Philistine after seeing how the Israelites would react. But he's not asking this question to see what he can get. He's not asking this question because he wants to have things done for him. And we can uh, verify that to be true because when uh, King Saul later on did offer his daughter in marriage to David, David basically said, no, I'm not worthy of marrying into the king's family. So clearly he wasn't actually interested in what the reward would be because he wanted the reward. So then you have to ask yourself, well, well, why is David asking this question then? Why is he asking what will be done uh, for whoever takes care of Goliath? And I think the reason that he was asking this question was he was trying to figure out why none of the Israelites had stepped up to take care of Goliath. And so he's saying, well, well, maybe there's no reward for them, or, or maybe, you know, I, I know King Saul, he's got a bit of a temper, maybe Saul will kill anyone who dares to take down Goliath before the king can go and, and fight as the champion of the Israelite. You know, I, so what I think David's doing there is he's, he's still just trying to piece together this whole situation, because he has full confidence that the Israelites, as God's chosen people, that any of them could go and stand up to Goliath, and he's just trying to figure out why. And you can kind of see that David truly does believe any of the Israelite people could stand up to Goliath, because you look at the way that he talks about Goliath. You know, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And here we see uh, a difference between the way that David is looking at this situation compared to the way that everyone else in the Israelite army is looking at the situation. So whereas everyone in the Israelite army are so scared of Goliath's size that they've lost faith in God to help them overcome Goliath, David instead is not looking at the physical, he's looking at the spiritual side of it. Where he's saying, this is someone who is coming against the people of Israel who are God's chosen people. And we serve the living God. We have God's protection. We have God's blessing. Who is this man to come and challenge us? What power does he have? And why has nobody here stepped up to take care of this problem? So that's what's happening. David's trying to piece together this situation because he can't understand why Goliath hasn't been taken care of. Goliath who would dare challenge God's holy people. Why has this not been taken care of? So let's continue on then. Uh, verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here, and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the man answered him as before. So here we start to see... 
the dynamic in the relationship between David and his older brother, oldest brother, Eliab. Eliab is clearly jealous that David has been anointed as the next king of Israel and probably wonders to himself, why, why, why was it not me? Why not me? Why David? Why my youngest brother? The prophet Samuel came to our house to anoint the next king. And when Samuel saw Eliab, Samuel thought for sure that Eliab would be the next king because of how uh, strong and tall Eliab was. Samuel thought, surely that will be the next king. Whereas God told him, well, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the, at the heart, and Eliab is not who I want to be the next king. So imagine how Eliab feels then. He's big, he's strong, he's tall, and yet his youngest brother has been anointed king. And for 40 days and nights, him along with the whole Israelite army had been cowering in fear at Goliath, and then David shows up and starts making a ruckus. And Eliab begins to accuse David of things that we know David doesn't need to be accused of. You know, he's accusing David of, of leaving the flock out in the wilderness. And how could you leave them there? Well, we know David already, you know, had another shepherd take care of them. He says, I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Well, we know that David doesn't have a wicked heart because scripture tells us that David actually had a heart after God's heart. So Eliab is making these false accusations against David. And what I really love is that David doesn't take it personally. He doesn't react um, angrily, you know, in that human anger. I've talked the difference between human anger and righteous anger. Righteous anger is when you get angry for something how someone else was wronged, human anger is when you get angry because of how you were wronged. And so we see David not reacting out of anger, but instead he gets up, leaves that situation, leaves where his brother is, and continues to ask other people the questions that he has been asking, which is also really important that David didn't give up after he encountered resistance from his oldest brother. He didn't just say, oh, you know what, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be doing this. He's like, no, what, what have I done? What are you getting mad at me for? But he doesn't just stay there and get into an argument with his brother. He gets up and goes find, and finds other people to continue gathering information. And then finally, uh, verses 31 and 32, we'll stop here. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And here we have the start of the battle between David and Goliath. And I want to point out that the battle happens, and David is a part of the battle because of what he has been doing here. That he is concerned about Israel, of, about Israel He's concerned about his brothers, and he's trying to gather information to understand what's going on here because he cares about what's going on there. And it was because he was going around asking people questions that he was overheard 
and brought to Saul, so that he could then volunteer to fight Goliath. And I would say that the battle of David fighting Goliath, that that was in God's will, that God didn't want his, his, his chosen people, the Israelites, cowering in fear before Goliath. He wanted them to make a stand, and David was willing to make a stand. And so David went and stood in God's will. He walked the path of God's will, but he was only able to be in that position because of the initiative that he took to ask questions and gather information because he cared about the people there. So David's initiative brought him into God's will. I think it's also worth noting that, you know, he stands before Saul. And remember, David knows that God has rejected Saul as king and that David is going to be the next king. And yet he still refers to himself before Saul as his servant. Because David recognizes that as of right now, Saul is keen and I am not. And I am here to serve, not to lead. And he says, I am willing to serve you and the people of Israel by going and fighting Goliath. And out of the entire Israelite army, Saul included, David was the only one who was willing to take a stand against Goliath. The only one who was willing to take a stand against evil. And that's what I want us to understand about David and Goliath. Is it's not simply um, a story of an underdog uh, overcoming a champion. And I'll, I'll probably go into a little bit more next week about why that perception is of the story is not uh, also not accurate. But what I want us to see is that this story of David versus Goliath is really a story about good versus evil. That Goliath was a force of evil. Not only was he a descendant of the Nephilim and one of the Anakim people, but he came from a warlike people that had that was in good relations with the Israelites. And they said, you know what? This isn't good enough for us. We don't want to just have good relations with the Israelites. We want to come and conquer them and not just take them out. We want to enslave them and make them do our bidding. And that was an action of evil. To attack, unprovoked, with the goal of enslaving the Israelites. That was evil. And David said, this will not stand. I will not allow this to stand because we are God's people. We have been blessed by God. And Goliath and the whole Philistine army are acting out of these evil intentions. And because nobody else here is willing to do something about it, I will do what needs to be done by taking a stand against this evil. 
and in taking that initiative, put himself in the goodness of God's will. It's not a story of underdog versus champion. It's a story of good standing up to evil. So anyway, that's the setup uh, for the battle between David and Goliath. And next week I'll talk about the battle itself and and everything uh, incorporated with that. But if you've never heard the story of David and Goliath before, this is the start. And if you have heard the, you know, you have read through this event time and time again, I hope that you were able to learn new things about it and that you were also able to take some lessons from uh, David's character and Jesse's character and the situation itself. Take lessons out of that to apply to your own life, uh, especially understanding the necessity of good uh, and forces of good standing up to forces of evil. But until next time, this has been another Sermon in the Pocket. I pray that God will bless you. And as always, I encourage you, if you have any questions or comments about anything I've talked about, to contact me either through the Sermon in the Pocket Facebook page or email me at sermoninthepocket at gmail.com. And I encourage you to share this with other people to help get the message out there. But until next time, I pray that God will bless you as you go throughout your day. Thank you for listening. Thank you.